Hello, and welcome to episode nine of that 60s recording podcast. My name is Joe Montague, and I am your host. Um, today's episode is a really interesting one. Um, I had an email from a listener. Um, was it an email or an Instagram um, message? Uh, one or the other. Um, saying I should get in touch with Gordon Elsmore from the Bootleg Beatles. Um, Gordon was on my radar as somebody I'd like to get on the podcast anyway, and this kind of... Uh, uh, I bumped, just got got made me pull my finger out and message him. Basically, <laughs> um, I've messaged Gordon a few times over the over the years. We've never actually met in person. Drummers don't tend to meet, um, so uh, we were aware of each other already. Um, obviously, Gordon is the uh, the don of a uh, of Beatles world, um, of the Ringo world, I should say. He is uh, the Ringo in the bootleg Beatles. Um, he uh, that which is arguably the top job um, in that industry. Um, he is a wealth of knowledge on Ringo um, and somebody who I have a huge amount of respect for. Um, so I hope that you enjoy uh, this conversation. We kind of talk a little bit about his history and how he got to the bootlegs. Um, and then we just get into some some general kind of, um, what do you call it, like common, common Ringo problems. So things that we've both found tricky or... Um, there's some specific examples of things that, um, you know, that we're, we're not sure of or that we find um, interesting or that we've come across during our sort of Ringo journey. So um, I think that's what the listener who got in touch with me had in mind, that we would just sort of have a chat and, and uh, do share some common interest um, sort of stories of, of being a Ringo. Obviously, Gordon's been doing it a lot longer than I have. Um but uh, yeah, anyway, so I hope you find this interesting. Um, here he is, Gordon Elsmore. Okay, so I am here on the phone with uh, Gordon Elsmore, uh, who is the drummer, um, the, the Ringo in the Bootleg Beatles. Um, and it was actually suggested by a listener um, that I get Gordon on, although he had been on my radar to get on um, already, but thought it would be a really cool idea for um, for us to have a conversation. And I, I know that... Um, the in sort of the covid crisis um gordon's recorded a few videos about um ringo's playing and i thought that might be of interest to uh, some of you listening so uh, thanks so much for for coming to chat to me gordon that's all right yeah no problem how are you doing yeah all good thank you this is strange because we've just done all of the how are you doing <laughs> already well, yeah we've just done five minutes of how are you doing and and chatting anyway but okay yeah. um so uh can you first of all just get a bit of um from your perspective, um, yeah. what you do for your living. So if you could just describe sort of your role within the bootlegs and, and who the bootleg Beatles are for anyone. I have a, a lot of listeners over in America who no doubt will have heard of them, but maybe just be interesting to hear from um, you. Well, for my role, I dress up and wear makeup and wigs. That's basically what I, <laughs> that's what I do. Now, what, so the bootleg Beatles uh, are sort of like, um, I guess by reputation, um, are the top sort of Beatles tribute band out there certainly this side of the atlantic and i think they were the first uh, tribute band ever um so they go back to about 1979 1980 which and it sort of grew out of um uh, a west end show called uh, beatlemania and uh what happened that was an american show that they were bringing to the west end and then the the what became the bootleg beatles was basically the cast of that show but the show finished fairly quickly it, sh it finished within a few months so um they decided that they would go out and remain as a band 
and and do shows. But that was 1980, and of course, that's a long time before um, I think most people had actually even heard of them. Um, I think as sort of the 90s rolled around, and music became sort of like Britpoppy and you know retro, they found their sort of they found their niche really. And they'd already been pretty well rehearsed and play and practiced and everything by then, so uh, you know, they, they, and they just took off. And then they were sort of supporting Oasis and playing Glastonbury and and getting a name. So and and that's where a lot of other tribute bands sort of joined the fray, really, and and, and started. So that's who the Bootleg Beatles are. Um, and I joined about five years ago, four or five years ago. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember anything in this lockdown. I have no, <laughs> no idea where we are. But I believe it, yeah, four, four years ago now, four and a half years ago. Let's call it a compromise, <laughs> four and a half. And um, uh, that's, that, that's, that's basically what happened, really. Um, yeah. Okay. So- and the weird thing is, I think, I knew everybody else in the band um, at that time. It's, it's kind of second generation bootleg Beatles now. Mm-hmm. So everybody of the originals has been replaced, although the management are, are were the original. Andre and Neil were original Bootleg Beatles, so they manage it now. So, um, yeah, so, so I'd already played with everybody else in the Bootleg Beatles, but in different bands. <laughs> We'd all sort of had a history together, and it was weird that we were all in the same place at the same time, really. Yeah. I suppose that... And what I do... What, Sorry, what were you asked me? What what would I do in a band? And and I basically yeah I play Ringo, so I have to uh, and like I say I dress up and wear makeup and and all sorts of stuff in order to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess you would describe the the Beatles world as being um, it's quite a a small community, isn't it? Really, I I, I call it Beatles world. I don't know if anybody else does, but. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Beatles World. Yeah, yeah. I've heard I've heard it all called all sorts of things, and Beatles World is probably the the cleanest way of referring. <laughs> to it. <laughs> yeah, I, yes, it's kind of like a spider's web, isn't it? Where um, everybody knows everybody else, even though they haven't actually all you know kind of met everybody. Yeah, everybody knows. It's it's weird when you when you're in a conversation when you're trying to find somebody to depth for a gig. You say, "Oh, I know, I know three or four good Johns or three or four good George, Georges," you know, and and. Call call them up and oh where are we, where's the gig oh well that that George is going to be closest to that gig and 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 that's how it works it's so I, I mean I know bands that have are working in, in in just kind of like a name in itself really they're just like a name but they could be four different George four different you know members at any one time <laughs> it's I think because the music is universal and you either know it or you don't you it's um people can just drop into that that role at, at short notice and and so of course. The, the Beatles tribute world is what you might call um, a bit incestuous, I suppose. They, you, know, <laughs> yeah. could, you know, everybody knows everybody else. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I always um, people are always quite surprised that you can um, sort of deputize, cover someone's role in a band. Um, I guess they call it subbing in America. Uh, about yeah. you know, at the drop of a hat, because everybody knows all of the songs, and there's a a reasonably standard repertoire between bands. Um, yeah. Which makes it easy to do that. That's right. Yeah, I think I mean, you know you, you, there's you know certain discussions about which harmonies people do and what songs people know and stuff. But usually, because the Beatles catalogue is so vast that you, you're going to be able to put 30, 30 or so songs together to do a show. Um, it, it would be a little bit more difficult in, in the bootlegs. To, we, I mean, we have a really sort of fairly sort of stable lineup and I, I can't remember the last time that anybody was really away, but, but 
the the problem is with the bootlegs is that there's a lot more sort of um yeah technical stuff going on about in in ear mixes and uh and and just just you know technical stuff and co in obviously costumes um yeah you know it becomes a little bit more complicated i guess of course. and things that people say and and that's actually cool even though it might not it might not seem that way to the the audience that it's actually quite structured i guess about what songs come when and who says what and that kind of thing it's actually you you'd kind of have to learn the show i mean it wouldn't be a difficult thing but it it is a little, a little bit more complicated than turning up with a black suit and wig. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, you guys are a you're a full time band, which you know there isn't. Yeah. Most other people, um, most other musicians in in the world have some other sort of steady job going on. And there's a I think of of all of the sort of Beatles musicians, there's not too many who are full time doing it. So yeah. that makes it you know that that means that you guys kind of have a consistent lineup because you're all full-time yeah that's right yeah yeah that's uh, absolutely true of course nobody's full-time nobody's even working <laughs> well <but> yes <laughs> i know you yeah, know exactly what you mean yeah um yeah we, we're basically on the go all the time and I, we were discussing this because this prolonged break that we've been having and um it, it, it what we've we've have sort of a sort of a, a regular we probably do but over 120 shows a year or something like that and and some of them are quite far away we do australia and new zealand and things like you know places like that and so there's days involved in getting to these locations so we're on the go all, all the time really um so it, it is quite a demanding full-time job um but we were thinking well why can't we go to somewhere else like japan we haven't been to japan or the states we don't really go there but it's like where, where do we fit it into the calendar you know mm. we it's it's difficult to actually break into a new territory when there's there's so much going on as as it is or there was you know i think um i mean that that suggests it's quite a um ambitious organization and, and i i don't know whether you'd agree with me but or not i mean i'm I'm fairly new to this sort of Beatles scene, having only done it for about four or five years. Um, right. But it seems to be that um, the Beatles, uh, the appetite for Beatles tribute and Beatles in general, it has grown quite significantly over the last few years, and it seems to be at a bit of a purple patch. So it seems to be a bit of a what? Sorry, a purple patch. You know, like a, a rosy moment for Beatles stuff. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Um... But I mean, I, 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 when I, when I started in 1998, that's when I started. The, 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 the Beatles thing was actually quite um, new then, I guess, or the tribute thing was quite new. And I'd be saying, oh, I'll do this for a couple of years until the bubble burst, but it, it never, it never has burst. And and so uh, the band, the Bootleg Beatles, was then the the top band, and it still is now. Although I think the stand, I think the standard. Uh, amongst everybody else has increased as as technology has allowed um, people to get more on stage, more sounds on stage and, and use a little bit of, you know, trickery. Um, a lot of bands, are, the standard is actually in producing a show, in producing a show that um, that people will want to see, uh, I think the standard has, has improved. Um, so if you say it, it's it's a good time, it's... It it is a good time because there are a lot of really good bands out there. I mean, there's obviously you know the the duos who throw it together in a pub and stuff like that. Yeah. But there are a lot of good bands out there, a lot of good musicians out there who've been really taking their time to 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 get it right, which is which is great, really. It's, you know, great. I guess, I mean, uh, from 
you know, working in a band who is, isn't the bootlegs, you know, that the bootleg Beatles is absolutely the, considered the top band and it's keeping yeah. everybody else on, on our toes. Cause we're, you know, we're, we're aspiring to be as good as you guys are. So I think, um, I guess it, so. Yeah. You know, it's your, it's your high standard that's holding us all to account really. <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. I think, I think the, the interesting thing is that, uh, I mean, when I, when I started doing Beatles stuff, there, there was there was a limit to what the, the bootleg Beatles were the only band that were using an orchestra because of the, obviously because of the costs involved, and um, and that, they still use an orchestra. It's still one of their thing, um, but back then, you wouldn't you wouldn't find a left-handed McCartney. You would never find a left-handed McCartney. It just wasn't it wasn't the thing, you know. Um, there you might find a left-hander who could play the bass, but in terms of actually looking and sounding like McCartney, that, that it didn't really exist. Mm. Um, but now, but now, um, I mean, I think Stephen White, who plays R. McCartney, might have been the first person to actually be a right-hander that learned how to play it left. May have been the first. I know there's a f- there's a few who've done that around about that time. But since he's been in the band for about ten years, I don't think anybody had done it. But now, of course, a lot of bands, you know, have got left-handed McCartneys, or at least have got McCartneys that are m- attempting to play left-handed which is 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 really important part of the shape of the Beatles on stage really and I think that's that's an example of of how um how things have moved on you know they moved on and of course I was saying like we're the only band that uses we don't you everything is live on 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 stage and we have an orchestra to do all the string parts and everything but um you know it is possible now to use um samples and backing tracks and all, all sorts of things and people would never know really i mean it doesn't have to as long as you don't use it too much but a lot of bands do that and i've got nothing particularly against that because it's not the easiest thing in the world to do but it helps produce a show that, that actually is qu- quite believable yeah and um, so the standard is actually you know is moved up if you know what i mean uh, absolutely I, I suppose in in the um context of, of um left-handed well playing the bass left-handed it, if um it seems like a really unthinkable thing to do, but if, you know, as soon as Steve did it, Steve White did it, it suddenly became yeah. a, th- you know, well, if he's done it, it's possible. Um, yeah. And he sort of opened the door for, for lots of other people to think it that they could do it themselves. Yeah. I mean, but, but you're, I mean, you're a drummer and I'm a drummer and, it, and it's, and I think people don't realize actually Ringo's left-handedness can throw a lot of screwballs into the, into the mix when you're playing the drums. It, but again, the, the that's I think the thing about the left-handed bass player is that people have come to accept that as the norm now and and rather than before where people were going um oh well yeah it's okay it's right not even noticing perhaps the bass player was right-handed now they will notice that the bass player is right-handed and not left-handed and and will be quite um put 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 aback by that really it's kind of considered a norm and a necessity which is um you know, which is interesting how things have changed over the years. Yeah, certainly. Um, okay, so before, uh, well, I know we touched on um, some of Ringo's sort of um, yeah, intricacies. Let's, if we just get a bit of context about you, if you wouldn't mind just sort of discussing how you um, got started playing um, and sort of just uh, perhaps your sort of journey into into the beginning of professional music. Right, well, um, so I left school and I wanted to be a drummer and 
I went through this sort of <laughs> bit of a tense period of time with my mum and dad. He wanted me to get a job, <laughs> a proper job. You know, we all get that, don't we? Yes. So I just, I just, re- I just practiced for about two years, and then I moved. I moved to London thinking that the streets were paved with gold, which of course they're not. Uh, they're pa- paved with lots of other things, <laughs> but not gold. And uh, and um, so the situation was I had, to, I had to either get a job or play in a band that was making money while I pursued something a little bit more interesting, something a bit more original. So I did quite a lot of original bands and, and quite a few of them were signed. But um, in the time that... Um, in, in the time that I, I, I played in a lot of covers bands, so, you know, where I grew up, I played in a lot of covers bands and all covers bands around that time, this sort of the early 90s, was it was all 60s stuff. It was all 60s stuff. There was nothing else. It's like time had stopped <laughs> in 1969 and nothing happened after that. And um, so I, I'd been playing in those sort of bands for a lot. And then I went to, to London and, and I was trying to, you know, get something going with original bands and getting signed. And I even did, you know, Top of the Pops with one band and I was signed to a quite a good label at one point. But there was never any money in it. You know, there was never any money. And it was a case of either giving up, getting a, a more, you know, more, well, a proper job uh, or, or, or joining a band that that that. that that was money and then of course the Beatles thing came up and I seemed to just drop straight into it I just I just seemed to drop straight into it I, I went to one audition for a Beatles tribute band and I got that job and and I and I honestly believe it was because I did so much 60s cover band stuff that um that I I just I just had I just had that feel I had that 60s feel and I didn't even re- realize at the time but that's really what what kind of happened and and for quite a while, I was still doing other projects, you know, obviously before I got married and the kids and stuff, mm-hmm. still doing other projects. But that was the consistent thing that kept on going. I always had a gig on the weekend for or whenever it was for um, for, for in a Ringo as a Ringo in a Beatles tribute band. And and it wasn't just one. It was lots of all everybody. Everybody um, wanted me to play with them at, for, at, you know, I must have played in different 20 30 different Beatles tribute bands <laughs> over the years so when I went you know what I was saying when I knew everybody you know in, in the bootleg, bootleg Beatles it's 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 no surprise because I played everywhere really and that's how I got into the Beatles tribute thing it was really about trying to keep my head above water financially while I did other things and um and here I am doing it all the time now <laughs> and I don't regret it at all it's not like my, um, you know, it's not if my dreams have been shattered. It, it's actually something that I perhaps pr- could have concentrated on earlier, really. Were you, um, would you have said you were sort of a, a Ringo fan, um, an overwhelmingly big Ringo fan at that stage? Or was he, I mean, I assume that as most drummers, he was sort of on your radar and you'd done, you'd listened to him. Um, yeah. And, or how, how would you describe your relationship with sort of Beatles music and Ringo at that stage? Um, I mean, the Beatles thing was, um, I, I was listening to the, the Beatles from a very early age. Um, it was, it was in my mum and dad's sort of collection and, uh, it was something that they kind of approved of really. And, and so I'd listened to the Beatles and I loved the Beatles. This is sort of before I became a drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that turned me on to being a drummer was um there were a lot i mean there were lots of drummers i mean it, for my sort of i was more interested in sort of cream and led zeppelin and deep purple all those kind of you know, ginger baker and mitch mitchell and ian pace those kind of drummers ringo was was always there 
you know, I, I never dis- I think a lot of drummers dismiss Ringo. I never dismiss Ringo. He was just part of that collection of drummers that I was listening to at that time. And I think um, I, I knew all, I knew all the Beatles songs before I knew any of the other songs. But I suppose the the inspiration to become a really really good drummer um, was was um, from a lot of a lot of different drummers. You know, a lot of those sort of late sixties drummers. Um, it's just that when I got when I got a bit older and started having to try and learn how to do Ringo's fills and Ringo's playing I realized that actually it really wasn't as straightforward and as simple as you as you think it is not at all no I I completely agree with you and I think it would be um I think it would be interesting to sort of discuss that a little bit because I think a lot of people are quite surprised um when especially when when I speak with say artists I work with or um, people who aren't familiar with, you know, as intimately familiar with Beatles music as as perhaps we are, having had to learn it, they're really quite surprised yeah. about how complicated learning Ringo is. Um, yeah. Was there? How, how did you at the very beginning? How did you even go about? Uh, um, so I'll explain this a little bit better. So when I first started in Beatles world, I I was given a list of about sixty songs, and. I knew that I had to just go in and play them, you know, no rehearsals in a theatre. And yeah. I I had a big task on my hand to to suddenly um try and learn them to a to a standard that a paying audience would be happy to, to watch. Um yeah. and uh, yeah. I actually remember watching a lot of videos of you playing and um and looking right. at how you did it. So you were you were right. a pretty important part of my my Beatles oh, history. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, Fantastic. How did you go about trying to learn the repertoire? Well, I guess in those days, in the late 90s, all we had was tapes and, and vinyl. That's all we had. So it was really about... I mean, the anthology video had come out, so that, and there was a bit, of, a bit of stuff on there. Uh, really, it was just trying to replicate the notes uh, and try to um, work out what, where the notes were, really. That was all it was, and that's how it was for quite a, a long time. Um, and just trying to put the notes together with the mannerisms... That is basically the 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 starting point. Now, as as things sort of moved on, as YouTube came along and stuff like that, and then I mean, recently I suppose within the last sort of five, six, seven years, you know, you get isolated tracks appearing on YouTube, and then you can actually hear things exactly as as Ringo did did them, and and it brings a whole new sort of perspective to to learning the parts. Um, and and I think it's interesting that, that even today, even today, I, I listen to things and I go, oh, I've got that wrong. That's not what he's playing at all. You know, it's it's something something different. And and also you have to think of it. Uh, that he's 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 a natural left hand, or at least he has a bias towards towards his left hand. So he's going to do things in a certain way. I mean, you'll know that you'll know this. You can't just drop in. Uh, without ever having learned the stuff, you can't. It, I mean, you be, you said you've been doing it for not very long time, for not very long time, four or five years, yeah. and that just gives you some kind of idea of of how long it really takes. Because if you'd have studied anything for four or five years, you'd be considered to be quite expert. And 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 I would agree with you that four and five years is really just the beginning. You know, it's really just the beginning in, in something like this because it's Ringo is such a difficult person to to, to mimic. Um, what the th- I think what helps you is that the more that you learn, 
um, the more that you can kind of get into Ringo's head and how he's doing how he's doing something. It doesn't help that you don't get there's, there's never even on the isolated tracks. It's not a great sound reproduction yeah. of, of what he's doing. You kind of have to get in. You have to kind of get into his mind to understand where he was, where he's planning on doing. You know, do you know what I mean? You kind of it, it sounds like he might be doing something that he did in another song. And you and you learn from that, really. Yeah, there's um, a lot of um, there's uh, intuition. It's basically it's knowledgeable intuition, I guess. Yeah, and I I think when you hear certain patterns that perhaps right-handed drummers play that sound yeah similar to something Ringo might play, but somehow Ringo sounds different. You you yeah. then have to start thinking. That's what you're talking about, getting into his head, where you know something that might just sound like a standard drum pattern actually isn't, and he's done it his way, and you've got to try yeah. and pick that apart. It's a, yeah, it's, it's yeah. challenging. Yeah, it's very, cha- it's very challenging. I mean, I've seen lots of very, very good drummers, you know, perform songs that Ringo played in an attempt to play it like Ringo, and come unstuck, <laughs> because it's very easy to assume what he's doing is actually. You know, it's very easy to assume that you're doing what he's doing because of the way that you play. But actually, when you actually get into it, he's playing something that seems very, very simple in a completely different way, in fact. And it can, you can, I mean, everybody would, you know, let's take an example, a Twist and Shout. It's a very straightforward song when you think about it. There's nothing, I mean, we're not talking about any kind of weird time signatures or anything like that. It's a very straightforward song. But if you want to play it exactly like Ringo, you have to really put your time in mm. to get all those fills and get all that feel in, and 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 and, and you know just put those things in that Ringo does that makes it sound like Ringo. It's a very tricky little song to actually do well, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. The, I mean, the breakdown that you did on you, uh, it was on Facebook recently, wasn't it? Um, yeah. I advise people to go to. It's on the Bootleg Beatles Facebook page. If you scroll down, um, there is a, the video that Gordon made on there, and. It, the breakdown you did is brilliant and one of the things that i really this this a little um intricacy that he does where he puts the the kick drum on the end of four back to one yeah. but only i think it's only every other bar and yeah that's the kind of attention to detail that he has in nearly all the songs um i, I think so I, I love those little nuances that you wouldn't you wouldn't think, but near, almost every song has a nuance somewhere that he will have thought about or instinctively done. Or, um, yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. I think. I think the thing. I think the thing is, it's like there's been so many. What the influences that Ringo had, you know, when he learned how to play, um, not just the musical influences, but the the, the influences he had by you know his left-handedness and stuff like that. All of those have been. All of, those are different to the influences that more younger and modern drummers learn now if you know what i mean we, we young drummers whether they're good or bad have learned from different influences you know and to go back to to playing how ringo played and thinking about how he would have why he played the way he did um it seems quite alien to a lot of lot of drummers around today it just seems very alien because we wouldn't play like that now no. a modern drummer wouldn't play like that now but um but it worked f- for that music and it worked for ringo 
and and because we're in a, you know Beatles tribute world, that's how we have to play. But it isn't, it isn't what you think it is. That, that's 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 the thing. It doesn't. It isn't exactly what you think it is. Just from a first listening, you know. No, I think even thinking back to, um, you're saying you're listening to a lot of um, Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin. The, yeah. Even by then, the drumming had become more akin to what it is now. Um, yes. And I remember. Uh, doing the first few shows playing um, Beatles music and feeling quite um, exposed at points because I was doing something that, um, you know, I've been playing rock and pop music for, for a long time up until then and suddenly I was, yeah. was playing rock and pop music but in a really different way and it, it makes you feel quite um, on edge, <laughs> like you, you've got nothing to hold yeah. on to really because it's, it's not what you're used to. No, it's it's really it's really it's really quite alien. I mean, you've heard everybody's heard those songs, you know, the Beatles songs, thousands of times. But actually, when you actually you know play it, you realise that it it is actually the thing that always gets me about listening to it. Um, I mean, we've you know all the time that I've tried to learn it, I've been trying to think because it's not really recorded particularly well or by a modern standard particularly mm. well. Um, y- you don't realise that. The song is this, the Beatles were a composite sound, you know. They were a sound of that mix of instruments of those people playing those instruments. So, the way the sound, the drums sound, is not just because of Ringo's playing. It's also the way that McCartney plays the bass because the bass and the bass drum make a composite sound. That is the sound of the Beatles. It has to be the Hofner and it has to be Ringo's bass drum, and that is the sound. And, and sometimes it's difficult to work out. Who who is making you know who is making the drums sound the way they do? I know that sounds crazy, but um, sometimes you, you you know McCartney might be playing a, a bass the bass a bass note and and it sounds like a bass drum and sometimes Ringo will be playing the bass drum it sounds like a, a bass note it's like one sound and then you mix in you know Lennon's acoustic guitar and then you've got another dimension so you have to kind of think of it as a, a composite sound of all the instruments playing at the same time makes that particular sound and you've got to unpick which are the actual bits that Ringo's playing and it's really it's really hard (laughs) it's really really hard listening to some of the very early things I mean there's like there's Phil's a a good example would be like a Phil in in For Me To You you know it's just that it's it's the fill is actually a little bit more complicated. Those fills are a little bit more complicated than the mic is actually picked up. Mm. The mic hasn't picked up all of the grace notes and all the accidental notes and all the bits and pieces in between, you know. So it's actually quite a, a fast fill. But when it gets picked up, it's only really the accents that are picked up. And 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 it took me years to to understand that. And and how much or how little Ringo is playing the bass drum when you've got McCartney thumping away <laughs> is actually really difficult. It's, it's so really challenging. You know, you to, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really challenging to hear, you know, what, what, what is actually going on here. And then a number of times I say, well, is that a snare drum or is that an acoustic guitar? <laughs> is that a bass? Is that a bass drum? What's, you know, what's going on? And it's only when you get it right and you're playing with somebody who plays bass, who's getting it right, You, the sound is there, the sound suddenly emerges, and you think, ah. Oh. And more often than not, it's not as complicated as, as you think, but sometimes it can be really, really, <laughs> really weird. It's just weird. They just had a very, very um, innovative way of playing, I think. Absolutely. Uh, another example that springs to my mind is Taxman. Um, yeah. I've always thought... It's never been clear in my mind whether the kick drum's going and 
or the bass is playing that little skip note. Um, cause I, Do you know what? I'm none the wiser either because <laughs> I've, I've had that thought exactly. Is that in isolated tracks, I've heard just a simple bass drum part and it's the McCartney who's doing the da-dun-dun thing. But I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. I don't know. Um, so I can't help you because I'm <laughs> in the same boat as you. <laughs> but it highlights the point that it's that's that's one of the things that I love that you know how, what are we on now fifty odd years later and we're still here yeah. having a conversation about it. Nobody's worked it out yet, and I think that yeah. that's one of the amazing things about the Beatles' music that um, because of those mixes and because of that sound, we we can just sit and talk about it, and there never will be a right answer. It just is what it was. No. <laughs> No, I mean, it's even, I think it's, I mean, I, you know, people know that Ringo's left-handed. But if you ask Ringo, how does that, you know, how did that affect his playing? To be honest, he wouldn't be able to tell you how that affected his playing. And I've seen lots of other drummers try to explain how it affected his playing. And nobody's ever come up with a good answer. <laughs> you just have to unpick it yourself. And you have your own way of thinking about it. Uh, you know, so when you go, nobody nobody will be able to give an answer to some of those questions because not even the Beatles themselves can remember, <laughs> you know, and, and they never have been able to. I mean, as soon as they walked out the studio after they'd recorded these things, it probably just got consigned to their mental dustbin <laughs> and they, they, they never thought about it again. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. W yeah. Was it, um, how did you find, I mean, you, you might not even think about it now, but it, I remember it being a particular challenge for me having to get out of the mentality of leading with my right hand on fills. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if I'm honest, at the at the start, I would lead with my left on the fills that absolutely necessitated it, and I'd lead with my right yeah. on any that I could get away with. Um, yeah. And I've slowly had to retrain myself to always lean left, lead with my left hand. Was it yeah. a, a sort of a reasonably big change for you, or how did you find it? Well, um, the way I did it was that I learned straight straight away everything left-handed or everything that had to be led with my left hand. I sort of learned with my left hand, and and I can't do it right-handed now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I I never gave myself the option of being able to do it right-handed. Although now you said that, I think there are probably a few things that I probably got wrong, and I do a bit right-handed, mm -hmm. and probably I I don't think about it that much. Although I'm always trying to, yeah, and I'm thinking. I'm always trying to improve on what I am doing, making sure that it's it is the right way. And certainly, when, when we do Abbey Road, for instance, I mean, we we recently did like the whole and in the end show, which was the one we did with Abbey Road and Let It Be, um, with the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra. Yeah. When I had to learn all those parts on Abbey Road, there's simply no way you can get away with fudging it. There's no way you can fudge anything. No. You have to do it exactly the way it's played because you just you just do because if you think about it, if you're sitting behind a drum kit, um, if you if you if you start to fill on your right hand, if you start hitting that 12 inch tom on your with your right hand, if the next if the next tom is the 13 inch one to your right, and Ringo is you know your your hand is in the wrong place yeah. if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Your hand is in the wrong place and you're not going to be able to get to it. So you have to hit that 12 inch tom with your left hand. You have to because the next one is going to be to your right. And that is Abbey Road all the way through. All the way through. He always starts on his left hand and then moves down to moves down to his next tom. So you can't get away with starting on your right at any point. Um, you just can't. No. You can't do it. 
you know. Um, okay, so oh, uh, oh, that's what I was going to ask. You just mentioned about these orchestras. I mean, what was that like <laughs> playing um, playing that album through? Or you did it with Peppers as well a few years ago, I think. And yeah, that's um, right. I mean, that must have been an unbelievable experience playing with that that weight behind you all. It's 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 a very um, it takes some time getting used to. I'll be honest with you. It really takes some time getting used to because although I have a, I mean, when I'm, when I, we use the in-ear monitors so I can have anything that I want in my mix, yeah. but it seems more natural to have everything in, you know? Yeah. yeah so, so you can hear the record, you know, in your, in your head, you can kind of mentally compare it to what's going on. You can hear all the little changes. You can, you can just hold on to it a bit better when you can hear everything. That's not everybody's choice, but I chose to hear everything, including the orchestra which I'm not sure if that was a good idea or a bad <laughs> idea, but it, it was it was great listening to it. But orchestras don't play like bands. No. And they don't play like bands with drummers that are trying to keep in time. But they, they move like the sea. You know, it's a very movable tempo that they have. That's their natural sort of coming and going sort of sound. And and also they're going, they're, they're following in a, a conductor who's trying to f- follow me. So it, it, they're so trained to, to to and rightly you know watch the conductor for m- movement it's almost like a second hand kind of tempo as well so it, it, they were brilliant and everything but when you're talking about 80 people their their tempos are, are in and in and out and that but that's the sound of an orchestra and it's beautiful i'm not it's not a criticism yeah. it's a beautiful sound um but when you're a drummer who's been sort of trying to keep it in in a strict time or a strict enough time or a Beatles time that you feel you're being pulled away you know the current of the sea that's behind you is pulling you away and it's actually incredibly demanding but I would I I I thought it was a fantastic experience I mean all these things are about experience Mm -hmm. the sound is it was it was it was amazing it was an amazing sound uh, and um, yes, I, I will definitely put that down to one of the best experiences I've had. You know? <laughs> I um, I, n- I know exactly what you mean. The the playing I've done with orchestras and uh, and brass bands as well are the same. Um, mm. The way I think of it is that it takes uh, a little bit of time for the the sound that they make to to get out, if you like. So yeah, um, you know, we hit a drum, or if you play a guitar chord, the sound's instant and very yeah. aggressive almost. Uh, yeah. Whereas theirs is a lot softer and takes a little bit of a, a curve to reach the peak of its of a That's of sort right. of where it is. So they always feel like they're behind. Um, yes, and you feel like you're playing, maybe sometimes even like a quaver or so ahead <laughs> ahead of yes. the beat, which is quite disconcerting. Yes, they 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 all tended to sound like I, they were behind me, um, and and of course your temptation is then to speed up. Yeah. Or try to be more aggressive, in keeping them together, or or maybe, may you you, you kind of you you're finding yourself second guessing. Shall I go back to meet them? Shall I push forward to keep them going? You know, you you're doing all of these things, and to be honest with you, you just have to you just have to stay in your own zone. <laughs> and um, when you listen back to how it sounded, nobody would really know um, that they that at the time you feel like you're playing well, you know, well in front of them. You know. Did you have a, a conversation with their conductor about? Um, you know, you're you're uh, in charge of the tempo on stage, um, mm. you know, with a band. And at that point, I presumably they were following the conductor and he was following you. Kind of, yeah. That I think that's kind of... He said he was following me and he said, that's the way it's going to be done. I'm going to follow you. And he did. 
but I mean, he was a, re a really, really good conductor. Richard, Richard, uh, Richard Bel Belcom, I think that was his name. Okay. Yeah, and he was a fantastic, fantastic conductor, and um, he had this knack of playing slightly ahead. Okay, he could get slightly ahead of me, which was a little bit distracting in, in my, in my, the corner of my eye. But he was really getting ahead of me, and in order to compensate for this orchestra being behind, being behind the beat, and 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 that's how he got round it, and. Uh, I tell you what, it you know you, it takes some doing to be able to do that, you know, to think slightly ahead. I don't even know if he realised he was doing it, but he was definitely moving stuff, moving stuff forward, which was fantastic. So it took a bit of pressure off me. Yeah. Um, what uh, in your shows in general? Um, do yeah. you have do you have a set show, or do you um, do you sort of chop and change the set list? Um, you know, depending on how you guys are feeling, or how how does it work in terms of what eras you decide to play? Um, it's um, well, we tend to have we have we have several different shows really. When we're on tour, we're doing like the Christmas tour or the Easter tour. That uh, is usually uh, celebrating some kind of point in the Beatles' career. So last year it was Abbey Road, so we there, it was Abbey Road heavy, but it's the same set for those for the for the christmas uk tour christmas easter tour and anything we do in australia that's that's um that's the same set that's the same set okay uh and same costume changes and we do that the same every night but we do other shows as well which are like festival shows or we do um uh more sort of corporate shows where we have a different kind of set and a different kind of show um so it's not it's not i would say it 80% of the time it's exactly the same for that year for that sort of touring cycle yeah and then and then the following year I mean like when we get back onto it we'll be into another cycle we'll be into the, the let it be thing so we'll be doing a, a different show again but that will be the, the our show for the for that year and then we'll change it we're yeah. in kind of a, a good decade aren't we if, if it's 50 year anniversaries for everything um, yeah uh, I suppose in the next decade it'll be 60 years of everything <laughs> yeah I know um yeah do you have when the show changes do the does the band have um much input in the repertoire the new repertoire that gets added or uh, is that mostly sort of discussion between the original cast we we all discuss it really I think we all discuss it um I mean Andre Barrow who's who was the old uh, George or is isn't man is more of a sort of musical director now and he sort of has the main say and we sort of kick it around really but we tend to all agree about what what we want to do there's not really any sort of complaints about what happens yeah um it, uh, i mean to be honest with you if it's down to me i don't mind i don't mind doing any of the beatles, <laughs> beatles songs there's not much there that i don't really want to do i mean you have to be considerate of course of whether th certain things work live I mean, we've had songs that we thought were you know were would really work but they never really quite hit the spot live i mean you you all know this um that when you're when you're putting a set together you've got two problems first of all the first half of the show that's all john lennon <laughs> it's all, all the early stuff that's john yeah. it's all john and then the second half of the, of the show that's all paul <laughs> and and then of course as you get into the sort of the later era of the beatles you've got the pace sort of stops really apart from maybe revolution and get back everything is quite pedestrian you know there's not a great deal of you know kicker you know like you know really solid rock songs there that, that have got any 
sort of speed really um so you have to be you have to find ways of making those things work i mean hey jude has always got you can't get rid of hey jude hey jude has got got to be in the set it's all got to be in the set but you also got long and winding road you've also got let it be so you're into this sort of problem where you've got a not a great deal of pace in the back end of the set and is that a great way to end a show um I mean, that's, that, that's always open for debate, always open for debate. Um, f- so so that when we do an encore, it has to be something like Birthday or I don't know, uh, or maybe one of the early songs, you know, Long Tall Sally or something like that. But, but that is the, that is, those are the issues with sets. Um, you just have to balance the vocals, which is hard, a bit of John, a bit of Paul, a bit of Ringo, a bit of George, you know, you have, but not all just one singer because that's insane to do. 30 shows in a tour with with that sort of system and you have to be aware of, of the pace of the show as it moves through the through the eras you know i think that'll be interesting for a lot of people to hear i mean i'm sure you guys I mean, we, we get it in our band we get people asking for very um i guess you'd call it like niche songs um very specific yeah. songs but there's a lot to take into account when run writing a set you know the, the vast majority of the audience won't be um absolute beatles nerds like we all are no, um, you know right. they they'll be familiar with the sort of red and blue albums and well the yeah. sort of the, the the stuff that's on those albums and and that's what they'll expect to hear so you know they might be feel Absol- shortchanged absolutely and also and also you've got this you've got you've got this the situation in which um, there are just so many Beatles songs <laughs> you know when there are how many how many two hundred Beatles songs something, something like, like that, that yeah. or two hundred and fifty so you can't do everything and there. You can't get rid of She Loves You or Hey Jude or I Want to Hold Your Hand or Hard Day's Night or Can't Buy Me Love. You can't get rid of them. You have to do them. You can't You can't say to somebody, well, we'll do She Said, She Said, but um, we have to get rid of Hard Day's Night. It's, it, you know, what do you, what do you get rid of in order to do those rather than <laughs> what you call niche songs, which is a good good way of describing them. They're, they're sort of songs that might mean something to, to a few people, but not to the general masses you know the gen- general public really yeah um i don't i i love going off piste i love doing you know hey bulldog or something like that or she said she said or rain but you do have to take other songs out of the set you know and especially when you're doing a, a sort of a you know a tribute to a particular album i mean it, it, when you're doing so abbey road you still you you, you can't do sergeant pepper <laughs> <laughs> Do you know you only have two hours to cover the ground, and there's just, that's just not enough time. Not enough time. It's a it's the sort of the beauty of the Beatles, isn't it? You could you could probably play four hours, you know, four sets, and still not have covered it all. You could play four weeks. Yeah, you could. <laughs> you know, you, it does feel like that sometimes. You, so that's really where the discussion about um, sets comes in, because uh, you're thinking, well. Yeah, okay, we'll do Martha, my dear, but you know, as a white album song, what about Helter Skelter? Or you know, yeah, this uh, white album, for instance, that was a nightmare to work out because there are so many songs on the white album. There are so many songs on the white album. People think, well, this it's a, full of a lot of fillers and stuff. Yeah. But actually, when you put down the hits, you, you've got more. You have got well, I say hits, but more well-known yeah. ones. You've got more songs there than any other album. Uh, so, what do you what do you turn out? You you know it, it, it's very difficult. I mean, difficult. the way. Uh, and uh, am I right in thinking that you you opened Let It Be on the West End? 
I did do Let It Be at the West End, yeah, for uh, uh, six, eight months or something like that when it started, yeah. Yeah, so that show, I mean, I was involved with that last year and I know that the way that... Oh, right, okay, that brilliant. They, um, they dealt with it was by shortening a lot of the tunes, which I, yeah. I don't know whether the audience will have, you know, how intimately they, they sort of know the songs. But, um, you know, I'd sort of on the fence with that. I, I like the idea that they managed to fit a lot more into the show, but it's at the expense of sort of maybe musical integrity i don't want to be too scathing about it but yeah i know what you mean there's there's two camps really i'm not particularly picky uh one way or the other but i know what you mean um i know what you mean it is a bit uh we don't really shorten songs we have done we've had we have shortened there's only two songs we've shortened there's ticket to ride and i think we shortened rock and roll music i think we did that and and that was really just so that we could keep the show um, in you know on track for a, at a particular point. Yeah, it was more. It was a sort of a. It was a kind of. Um, yeah, it was a just kind of a tactic, really. But generally, we don't shorten the songs, um, and I think that's that's kind of more. Yeah, it's it's hmm. yeah, I, I yeah, I I I prefer not to shorten songs because they're so short already. <laughs> <laughs> they're so short already. You know, some of these are like half, one and a half minutes. It's like once you've taken a little bit out, you're under a minute, and yeah. it's kind of once you've started, you're stopping, and it's it's a little bit distracting. I think. Yeah, but, well, I I agree. Um, well, interestingly yeah. enough, uh, you you may or may not be interested to know, but I I actually yeah. own the snare drum that you used on on the West End. <laughs> Oh really? Yeah, I, I bought it was from that, a chapel. Was that the one that was? It was a rewrapped one, wasn't it? Or was it? Um, That's right. Yeah, it was a it was a nice snare drum. That. That's, it's beautiful. I, I was on eBay. It's got um, it's got a new cover on it now. It's like a sort of maple grain type covering. Right. And it was on for okay. three hundred quid, which I thought you know, like it, it's nineteen sixty nine jazz festival, which That's should it, be yeah. going for five hundred and fifty. I was thinking, why yeah, is it only three hundred right. quid? Um, so I yeah. I snapped it up, and I the chap who you might even know him. He was um, it's like a drum dealer who who hires out kits to shows. I think on reg quite regularly, right. Um, right. and he'd taken it back off the West End and rewrapped it for a client for something else. Um, right. And I think because it wasn't an original wrap, that's why it was so cheap. Um, right. But it's it's an absolutely stunning drum. I, I'm. It's they're lovely. Those jazz festivals are great. They're really great. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, right. So have, have you got a uh, an era that you prefer playing more than the others? Um, not really. Not really. If I'm being brutally honest, I don't really want to play um, Long and Winding Road again. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you'll, you'll find this as a, as, a, as a Ringo. There are songs that you just love listening to. You love, you'd, be, you'd be in the audience and you'd love listening to it all day long and long and winding road is one of those songs i love listening to i love listening to that era but i don't want to play it no because from a drummer's point of view there's not much going on <laughs> it's a bit it's a bit dull uh it's not a great performance and then there's songs where, which i adore playing that i'm not really that bothered about listening to really i i guess like um hello goodbye is a song that i love listening to and i love playing and all of that sort of mid period that kind of Strawberry Fields Forever, Hello Goodbye, Penny Lane. Mm. Love all that. And it's got all the orchestra in it as well. I love all that. But I love all the early stuff as well. Um, 
I think towards the end, when it becomes a little bit like Ringo is a little bit maybe fed up or he's not being asked to do too much or he's doing, you know, he's, I don't know. That's the bit that I'm not really that worried about. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah. Um, I do love Hello Goodbye is probably when I get asked what's my favorite song to play I think Hello Goodbye is up there those the fills in that in throughout that tune are, are just um it's like a little a little masterpiece within a within a song I love it yeah it's great and they you know they there there Hello Goodbye there are two tricky little you know four bar or eight, eight bar drum fill patterns yeah. things going on there that, that I don't think people notice, but that's tricky. Some of those things in there are, tr- are tricky in Hello Goodbye. I think also about R- Ringo's playing, going back to Ringo's playing, is that when you actually listen to a Beatles songs, you're not aware, really, of the the very subtle sort of time signature changes mm. and the, the subtle pattern changes and feel changes. And it's really hard for a drummer to go from one kind of... Uh, time signature or one kind of feel into another without stop without speeding up or slowing down. Uh, absolutely, you know, yeah. It, um, so like we can work it out. I think there's probably about is it three different time signatures in there, or it feels like there is. Yeah. And um, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's loads of. I, I feel fine as well. There's another one. That was one I was just about to bring up. It's that's probably yeah. the song that I've struggled with. Um, or I, I did, I mean, I guess the, the struggle never stops, does it? <laughs> but Because you're yeah, constantly yeah. trying to improve. But that's the one that I've, one tune that I've had to work really hard at to try and get right. Yeah. It's, um, that's a, yeah, that's a particularly difficult one to make sound, make, make sound right live. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Because he's only sort of tapping the drums and he's using rim shot. Oh, the discussions I've had with sound engineers where I've gone, I think it's rim shot. And they're going, well, if you do rim shot, it doesn't really count. <laughs> so you end up having to really hit this snare. And of course, which is what he did live. But to actually get that sound on stage is very, very hard. How do you find, um, I suppose every every sort of ring goes different about this. Um, how how do you balance what he did live versus the record? Are you, are you strictly to the record or do you do you sort of have your own mix that you like? Um, well, I try to do everything as it is on the record, but there have been times when it doesn't work. Um, uh, we, I mean, I've done, we have, our sound engineer tends to record stuff a lot. So every so often I go and listen to, um, how it's sounding, um, live. And I think sometimes when you, when you listen to the recordings, um, you can see why Ringo changed what he was doing live because it does sometimes when you listen when you listen to what he's doing on the records it sounds a bit empty yeah uh, and the, the 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 kind of question in my my mind about that is in the early stuff when Ringo when he was live he was always four on the floor he's always punching the bass drum on every beat yeah. to, just to push it through whereas in the studio he was kind of a much he was like you know you referred to that sort of video that i did he was much more sparse with his bass drum. yeah and that i'm not entirely convinced that actually works that well live um so i tend to sort of that that's really the the que- that's the r- real sort of dilemma i have when playing ringo stuff whether to do it like him live in the very early stuff to make it sound fuller and more dynamic. Well, I think miking is is so different now that yeah. when he's coming from almost a jazz um, mindset, putting four to the floor yeah. throughout, and uh, you know that yeah. uh, what do they 
they call it feathering, you know, in the in the jazz tradition. Yeah. And he's, um, and he's, uh, when you now in this modern day, we don't need to do it because the no. the mic the mics are there and and it sounds loud yeah. enough as it is. Whereas that was a necessity back in sort of the early sixties. Yeah. Exactly. I, I, it's it's a difficult one because then you you've got the sound engineer say, well, this is how it should sound, and goes to great lengths to make it sound like the record, and it's really down to musicians to to take that sort of you know soundscape and put on you know the musical sort of paint really to make it sound right. Yeah. And and it, you, you you I do I do actually have have issues with that particular era, the very very early era. Yeah. Of Ringo because he 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 I, I I can see that he's basically trying to make as much noise as possible behind the drums you know when he's playing live for obvious because like you say because miking was different yeah back then uh, now we have we have all the miking that we need but somehow it still doesn't sound quite right if you do it like the studio in on some songs on a, on a few songs not all of yeah. them but yeah I I wonder. Um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. One of the things that I'm doing at the moment um, is uh, the, the people that listen to this regularly will know I, I started sending out sort of my own re-recordings of um, of Ringo's stuff, uh, like Ringo's right, isolated okay. drums, um, to click tracks so that people can use it in writing right. or making covers or whatever yeah. they want. Um, mm-hmm. So in the process of doing that, I've been transcribing um, on more of like a, I suppose you'd say like an academic level um what he's doing so i'm moving through the catalogue and that's something i've i've thought about in particularly the first album or two um yeah i'm sure i can hear um if you if i'm crank up my headphones i can hear the kick drum feathering and he's accenting maybe one one kick drum out of every two bars um, yes i think that's probably about right yeah and there was i've heard maybe it was in um Jeff Emmerich's book, perhaps talking about um, Ringo playing quite lightly in the studio, um, and then yeah. telling, having to tell him to kick, really thump the kick drum. Um, yeah. And it's interesting that you bring up the four to the floor thing because I was really second guessing myself when I was sort of taking it. Taking no, it down. I think I think I mean I've well, yes, you, you your your thoughts are pretty similar to mine on that. To be honest, I think he probably is feathering on the bass drum, on every on every beat mm. you know and and if you look at the washington coliseum gig when you actually do get a quite a good look at what he's doing on his bass drum you can see him doing that and i appreciate that's live but the only hits that you can hear are the ones where he's really putting some effort into it it's almost as if he's doing that as a kind of almost like a way of you know keeping himself in time a little bit he's just feathering on the bass drum i mean the mic is so far away yeah you know, both in the studio and live, that, you know, unless you're really, really going for it, you're not going to hear anything. I think it's a, a more of a feeling that, especially um, from from sort of a jazz mindset, the, that yeah. the feathering was there to sort of augment the, the double bass. And yeah. if, you know, a lot of those early songs, Paul is playing a walking bass line. Um, yeah. And I think that I always got taught that feathering the bass drum was more about your timekeeping and feel than yeah. it was about the rest of the band. And I, I think that you're probably right. He is doing it to keep it, keep time and to just, it's one of those tiny little 1% details that just adds to the authenticity of, of his yeah, feel. That's it. Yeah, I agree. And also you've got to remember he's, he's, 
his right foot foot is not is not probably as coordinated as as his left. And I think if you if I was if I was sitting behind a left-handed drum kit, I think it would be quite easy to learn how to keep the my left foot going on every beat. You know, as a way of starting to get a beat going. Yeah. And I think he may have kind of got into that habit of doing that. And then as he as he moved on, he refined it into being where he want putting it where he wanted it to be. Um, that's another, you know, that's a, what I'm, you know, that's how if I'm if I'm trying to get into his head from the left-handed sort of thing, that's where I'm thinking really. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think he did probably hit the bass drum on every in every beat. But you can either uh, on the BBC sessions when you listen to Please Please Me, he's very clearly. Um, He's very clearly hitting the bass drum on the on the first beat of the bar, but then nowhere else really. Yes. Or maybe on the fourth and. But again, that's a radio a radio way of doing things, a radio recording. It's you know you could this is we're getting into this discussion that has no end. You know, it has no <laughs> end, and this is what we do, isn't it? Yeah. It has no end. Um, we'll never really know, but I think somewhere in there is the truth. I, I think one of the interesting things to take away from it is that uh, if you were to dis- if I was to describe how I think of Ringo's playing and this is the same for a lot of people that he's he's a song drummer and he drum he's a real natural drummer um yeah. you know he's not overly trained and he plays for the situation um yeah. you know so that's why there's so many inconsistencies between the very early versions of a lot of tunes um, you yes. know, per, between sessions because the situation's different and calls for a different thing. Um, yeah, you know, and he he always plays in he always plays the correct um, sort of the correct feel and uh, what's you know like contributes to the song in the correct way. But the the yes. level of intensity varies depending on what situation the band are in. He's he's always very mindful, isn't he, yeah. of where the vocals are. Absolutely, in yeah. a song, I think. I mean, if you listen, I mean, there's, I've just, we've just done a sort of like a home recording, um, put together of "Sexy Sadie," which we'll put on the Facebook oh, page cool. at some point. And that's not a song I particularly knew very well before I did yeah. it, other than I've made it play, maybe played it once or twice over the years. And it, and the fills, they don't sound like they they're in the wrong place, but when you actually play it as a drummer, you realise that they're actually not in a very convenient place, <laughs> and. Um, they seem to be all over the vocals. They're like almost sort of coinciding with the vocals mm. as opposed. And, and it sounds like he, he might've been asked to do that. Or he might've been Lennon might've asked him to sort of play quite full where the vocals are, are. as it, it just, it makes, it makes the whole structure of the song sound a little bit uneven, yeah. you know, somehow. Whereas you've got say a day in the life, which you've got some great fills in great fills in. Um, but they're, completely not where the vocals are as soon as lennon shuts up ringo comes in with a fill so he's obviously very mindful of where the vocals are and that that sort of determines where he does his fills i think on a lot of that later sort of stuff um it's yeah it's 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 a very in he's, he's you can kind of work out where he's where he's thinking or what he's thinking really it's yeah it is really interesting that especially on some of the later songs I just had a discussion about she said she said with somebody um right. talking they and they asked me um they asked me about that sort of uh, almost I can't remember the exact question but it was something about Ringo's awareness of where the vocal line is and how busy that part is um yeah 
and almost wasn't too sure because it's it's quite against his character to play a, a yeah. song as busy as that. Um, and it is yeah. almost like he, he got asked to do it or they said to him, you know, yeah. you, you can do your thing on this one. I mean, I it's it's also if you really, I suppose, I've never really thought about it that much, but now you've mentioned it, it's, it's the difference between Lennon and McCartney, isn't it, I guess? You know, McCartney kind, kind of presented a song almost in its complete completed form. Yeah. And I guess he would have gone to Ringo and said, well, I want you to play on this, but stay out of my way kind of thing. Maybe that's kind of what he was saying. You know, this is how it is. You fit your stuff into to mine. Whereas Lennon might have come, well, here's an idea. Um, I don't like my voice, which is <laughs> John didn't like his no. voice. Can you can you throw more stuff into it? So it kind of covers covers my tracks a little bit. Maybe that was what was going on. But certainly when you're talking about rain, she said, she said, sexy Sadie, I've just mentioned. It does almost look like Ringo is putting stuff in there to cover up something else, which may have been Lennon's voice, which is a terrible shame because it's an amazing voice. But I don't think Lennon was particularly keen on it. I think he might have been asking Ringo to muddy the waters a little bit. Perhaps you're right. That's a, a, another thing I hadn't really thought of. Um, yeah. I I have to say, I'm, I'm really enjoying speaking to you and I'm I'm sure that we might um we might do this again because i feel like we could talk for for another hour or two yeah at least. i know um yeah so i might uh i might put this out to to sort of people who are listening to see if they've got questions um and we'll maybe do a, a an episode where we sort of discuss a bit more about this kind of stuff okay yeah um, that'd be great and uh just so before we before we wrap up what's um obviously give nothing at the moment but what's your uh, your plans with the bootlegs for when we can all sort of get back up and running how are you dealing with with reopening well there's a plan but it's not a sort of set in stone plan because we really don't know what's happening we don't we don't know i mean none of the bootleg bills or any bands i mean you'll know nobody really knows what's going no. on um the plan is to try and we've got a couple of shows uh, i wish i'd worked out i wish i remembered where they were because i can't remember we've got a couple of shows next month but they're, they're sort of booked in, penciled in, and we're hoping to do that then. But um, in uh, sort of this, it, we're meant to be going to Australia. Those shows are on sale now. And, and as far as we know, they're still going ahead, but we don't know. We don't know what the situation in Australia is going to be in October, November. Mm -hmm. um, we're still uh, positive that we're going to be playing the Christmas tour, which we do every year in the UK. Uh, but again, we can't say uh, we we can't say for absolute sure sh certainty that we're going to do that. But it looks like we probably are going to do it. So um, I'm certainly hoping that we will both go to Australia and the Christmas do the Christmas tour. And I think hopefully, I mean, what we now July August, yeah. I would have thought that the the Christmas tour would be the one that we would definitely do. Yeah. Uh, and and that's 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 going to be a brilliant tour. Because I think everybody's going to be so fed up with everything <laughs> that that the the, uh, will, the the bootleg Beatles um, Christmas tour will be just what they need. Yeah, a big release, you know, release of tension for all this. I think I th I, I think it, it we, I think everybody feels that it's coming to an end somehow. You know, this this whole the whole COVID thing is coming to an end, and I think I think theatres will probably um, will be able to open soon. Definitely. How. Um, was slightly moving off track here, but how have you found? I know as a musician, I've I found it particularly difficult going from 
very sort of hectic touring schedule to to nothing has been a huge shock to the system. How how have you found it? Um, I, I well, um, yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I found pretty much exactly the same, um, same thing really. I, I must admit we've been touring so hard from August last year until March when the lockdown started. Where I was thinking, gosh, I could do a couple of weeks off like <laughs> this COVID things. I hope the COVID takes off, not really realizing that actually it was incredibly serious yeah. and that we'd be locked down for four or five months. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, I've got kids and I've spent a lot of time with them, which I wouldn't have done normally. Mm -hmm. So that's been great. And I've done a lot of jobs around the house that, um, <laughs> that I haven't been able to do <laughs> um, pre you know, previously. So it hasn't been too bad. M but I think a mus every musician n needs to feel that um that their vocation is still alive and well if you know what i mean oh, yeah uh, if there's no you can't really it's fit, it's difficult maintaining your sense of identity when you're not being able to do what you have done for so many years um so uh that's how i've been feeling about it really feeling a little bit like it's time to go back to work I, I agree. I, I think I can sort of feel exactly the same about everything. I, again, I've got two kids as well, so it's been lovely to spend time with them, but but yeah. it's uh, time to go back on the road now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, where Where's the UK tour taking you? I'm, I'm, you're going all over. Are you coming to York? I'm up in Leeds, and I, I wonder if... Uh, yeah. Um, it's the barbecue uh, you do, isn't not, it? Yeah. To be honest with you, I don't know. York is something that we tend to do sort of in the springtime, so ah. when we come to York, we'll definitely be close to you in the springtime um the thing is so many uh, gigs have been postponed that they're all over the place next year next year we'll be we'll be touring all of the time we'll be playing all of the time and i can't remember in which order everything is has been placed but uh i would send people to the uh the bootlegbeatles.com uh date sheet to find out where we're playing i'll put a link um, to that um on the show notes yeah. of this so um wherever they're listening to it um i'll, I'll yeah. make sure that i link it to the to your your guys yeah. website yeah brilliant thanks very much i think i think uh, from december we'll be we'll be out and about as normal i think is the it's the thing yeah great well, Australia, yeah, Australia. November will be be in, in Australia in November. Yeah. Oh, of course. How? Um, last question. I'm very conscious. I'm taking up a lot of your time. I, I, again, like I say, I feel like we could just chat for ages about stuff. Um, how, right. What's the reaction? Is there a difference in reaction in Australia than than in the UK? Um, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, no, I, I don't think there's. Re I don't think there is a difference. Uh, I think they're exactly the same. I suppose Australia I has uh, a, a bit of a relationship with the Beatles generally because they toured a lot down there. Yes, I know. Yeah, um, they certainly they certainly played in all the sort of places where we play, and and um, the the reaction we get is really good. We've been playing even in you know even in the smaller places. Um, we tend to have we tend to have the same sort of venues every year so we have a following down under um of people that come to see us and and it's it's a strange play i don't know if you've ever been to australia I but it's it's a, yeah it's 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 strange in that you've traveled so far across the other side of the world you go through some of the most exotic places on earth and then you go to australia and it's kind of a little bit like um 
a, almost like a parallel universe in almost in that it's exactly the same but different <laughs> if you know what yeah. i mean you if 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 you go to perth and then you open your eyes and somebody asks you are you in the uk or are you in australia it would might take you a little while to work that one out <laughs> uh and that's not being derogatory at all it's just that's that's kind of the way it is yeah. they have a very similar kind of outlook on life uh, they have their own unique identity obviously and and the weather's completely different and a lot of things are completely different but when it comes to actual doing shows and performance and people coming out to see you it's very similar i think mm. Mm. interesting um thank you yeah. so much for taking the time to speak to me that's all right joe that's great and i uh, i hope that everybody's enjoyed listening to it and um, and if you're up for it i i think it would be um quite a nice idea to um to take some listener questions about um about sort of drumming because i know that's something i think uh, I imagine that a lot of the listeners to this are artists and I know that drumming is a bit of a, a sort of a mysterious thing um, for right, a lot okay. of artists. And I, I think that um, I hope that people find this conversation interesting. And if you if they've got questions, maybe we could uh, we could have another another chat about some of the more specifics, um, th- you know, how Ringo's playing evolved through time. Definitely. Definitely. We can do that. That would be great. That would be wonderful. Yeah. Super. All right. Well, cheers, Gordon. And uh, I'll uh, I'll no doubt speak to you soon. All right then, Joe. Brilliant. Okay, mate. Cheers. So there we have it, Gordon Elsmore. Um, as usual, I hope that you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, Gordon's such a lovely fellow, um, and I, I, I could, we could just chat for ages. You know, there's so much that um, I can learn from him, and uh, you know that I just, it's so nice to to speak to. Um, somebody who's had similar experiences of having to learn the uh, the Beatles catalogue like we have. Um, so yeah, I hope I hope you found that interesting. Um, you'll you may be pleased to know that that's the the last um, of the sort of drum series, I suppose, if you like. It's been a little mini drum series. I guess this podcast will always have a slight weighting towards drums, just because that's what I do. Um, and uh, yeah, that's what I know about best. Um, so anyway. Uh, Yes. Uh, oh, yes. What I was going to say was I would really like to get um, Gordon back on for a question and answer episode. I know from my Instagram feed that people have um, just sort of general questions. I mean, I've got questions, as you heard in that episode. And, and you know, Gordon has too. They're all questions about um, stuff that happened, you know, Ringo things and um, questions about drum sounds and that kind of stuff so I think a question and answer episode with him um, or even just about his experiences in the bootlegs you might be interested in that um, so I think I'd like to do that uh, probably happen uh, early September or something like that I'll put a call out on my Instagram which is at all you need is drums um, for questions and then we'll set up a uh, another phone call like that in response to the questions um, I think that will make a, a really interesting episode so look out for that um the next week i am talking to um david hood who is the bass player of the famous muscle shoals rhythm section um another uh, just like an absolute legend of recording um he is a incredibly sweet chap and 
Um, it was just amazing to get to speak to him. Um, so, yeah, that's what's coming up next week. Um, as usual, you can get in touch with me, uh, Joe, at All You Need Is Drums, or you can go to my website, allyouneedisdrums.com, for any information on um, the stems that I send out, the Beatles stems. There's a full archive up there, um, or for information about the sessions that I do. Um, feel free to, to contact me if you've got feedback for the podcast or you want to suggest anybody that I should speak to. Um, as this episode attests to, I, um, I love getting feedback and I am more than ready to act on the feedback that I get given. <laughs> so yeah, please don't be a stranger. Um, as usual, I want to say a big thank you to Joe Kane for providing the intro and outro music that I absolutely love. Um, and my good friend David Henshaw for continuing to provide the artwork for all of this. Um, he is a super talented chap. Um, so I will see you in a couple of weeks with David Hood. Goodbye. Goodbye.